You're listening to the Co-Main Event Podcast. And now your hosts, Ben Folks and Chad Dunn. That's right. You're tuned in to another spine-tingling episode of the Co-Main Event Podcast. I'm one of your co-hosts, Chad Dundas from ESPN.com. I'm here at his house, sitting across the table from your other co-host from USA Today and MMAJunkie.com, Ben Folks. Ben, how are you? I'm wonderful. We should mention, I guess right off the top, how this is a, kind of a special edition of yeah, the podcast. Yeah. Unorthodox. Yeah. I mean, that is one thing we've been both praised and criticized for is our unorthodox styles. Yeah. Uh, and the reason for, for this special Monday edition of the Co-Main Event Podcast is that Chad's wife is bursting with child. Uh, any moment now, uh, Chad's seed should come just tr- stampeding into into the earth. Uh, I mean, I, I can tell you, I saw Chad's wife yesterday look like she's going to explode at any minute. Yeah, if... Uh, this shit about to go down. If, the, if, the, if this episode feels a little strange, it's for a couple of different reasons. One, because today is Sunday. We're yeah. recording this on a Sunday. Totally unorthodox. Uh, typically a day of rest. Um, <laughs> the day of the Lord. So, you know, we wouldn't typically be doing this on this day. Uh, and the reason we're doing that, as Ben said, was because as of 20 minutes ago when I left the house, my wife had not gone into labor yet. So we're going to try to squeeze this episode in. And then by which giving my wife... A full seven days uh, to, uh, in, in just in case our unborn baby daughter decides to make a move uh, at any point. Um, my wife, for what it's worth, told me that she was going to do her best to go into labor while we're recording this. Oh, okay. Do you have like a special beeper or anything that, that can go off? Pregnancy beeper? Baby beeper? Yeah, no. My, if, if you hear my baby beeper go off, that means that I only have 12 hours to get home before we have to head to the hospital. So <laughs> I think we'll be okay. Well, I'm sure by next week, by the time we return to do the podcast next week, your wife will have had the baby uh, and that whole situation will be settled, right? Got yeah, it. Everything can go back to normal. Yeah, yeah. We'll just be over. We'll be back to our normal lives. Uh, if she hasn't had the baby, I mean... I don't even know. I won't even know what to say. I think that she'll be just moving further and further into that special kind of like consternation and physical discomfort that the uh, the yeah. late stage. It, it doesn't look woman, fun at this point. Yeah, no. I assume it's not fun at all. Um, and the other reason that this episode of the Co-Main Event Podcast might feel a little strange to you is that today or this episode, I guess, would we thought was going to be the episode where we would be breaking down and recapping what happened at UFC 151. Yeah. And that would have been so easy to think of stuff to talk about, right? If that had happened. Which, I mean, it would, then we wouldn't have to work too hard to come up with what we were going to talk about. It would all just be kind of laid out for us. But no, couldn't be that easy. No. Nope. Yeah, John Jones had to go screw us all, as we <laughs> talked about last week. Uh, just kidding, John. I know you're out there listening. Uh, yeah, so we, as a result, we had yesterday free, a free Saturday. Um, so we still somehow conspired to spend it together. Yeah, in, uh, damn it. What probably wasn't the smartest thing that we could have done. Uh, watching the, the first game of the college football season, our beloved Montana Grizzlies taking on the hated South Dakota Coyotes. Oh, the Coyotes. Yeah, everyone will be pleased to know that the number 11 team in the nation in the football championship subdivision uh, Montana Grizzlies emerged victorious, 35-24, to 24, uh, in a come-from-behind victory, I should add. Well, everybody already knows that. I'm yeah, sure everybody no, I'm, they read along. about it. And, yeah, but uh, then, you know, you guys hung around a little while after the game, we sat around, and then everybody went home. I found myself sitting there in front of the TV watching the second half of Back to the Future 3 on the movie channel, wishing, God damn it, it'd be nice if there were some fights to watch. But right about now would be the time John Jones and Dan Henderson would be starting up. 
I mean, God, that would have been nice. Because it's like salt in your wound. It was. Well, I'm sitting there watching Marty McFly, you know, pretend like he's not 30 years old. Uh, and uh, it's it's tough. I got to tell you, it's tough. Uh, also, though, here's the thing. And I, I wrote a little something on this for, for MMA Junkie uh, today being Sunday. So, you know, Monday now you can go back and look it up. Talk to a couple different people. You know, if you're one of the people who booked travel from somewhere else, you bought an airline ticket, you bought a hotel room to go to Vegas and see UFC 151. Hey, the UFC cancels the event. Ticketmaster gives you your money back. No big deal. But that airfare and that, that hotel, is, it's not, not quite so easy. And a right. bunch of people just decided, hey, you know, hey, trip to Vegas is a trip to Vegas. We'll just go. The thing I wonder, and nobody seemed too pissed off about it, somewhat surprisingly. But the thing I wonder is, like, what do you like? How is that not going to affect, if not these people, some other people who hear about that situation? Because before, I would have told you if you were like, "Hey, I'm thinking about booking a ticket to go to Las Vegas to see, you know, the New Year's Eve show, the end of the year show. It's always a big one. Like, do you think I should do it?" And I'd, I would have told you, like, "Well, yeah, hey, fight card subject to change, but at least you know there's going to be a fight card. There's yeah. no way. There's yeah. no way you're going to book this travel and go there, and then by the time you get there, there's not going to be a UFC event. That's not possible. And yet now we know that it is possible. I mean, not terribly likely that that's going to happen again, but at the same time, you can't say not possible anymore. Yeah, but I mean, hey, at least for this one, you're still going to Vegas. It's not like you booked a trip to go see Strike Force in Lexington, or you know, you're going yeah. to. Uh, where else? Peoria. I, I forget that other people might actually enjoy going to Las Vegas, whereas I do not. Yeah, well, you can go to see the Cirque du Soleil. Oh, Shu Hirata. Shu Hirata, Takeo Mizugaki's uh, manager, who he he had tickets. He and uh, 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 Mizugaki's cornerman, and they were out there. Went to see Cirque du Soleil's O. Uh, mm. Nice heard time. Good things. Yeah, yeah. I, I heard the pageantry is wonderful. Uh, you might think that without a show this weekend, we wouldn't have that much to talk about, but obviously not the case. This week's show, per usual, will be conducted in three rounds. In round number one, uh, Tim, Sylvia, and Andre Arlovsky, the universe is trying to tell you something. We will break <laughs> down the uh, uh, no contest from over the weekend at 1FC between the uh, the two once and future UFC heavyweights. <laughs> grizzled veterans. Yeah, Let's grizzled say veterans, that. Grizzled veterans. Uh, so round two, uh, the return of George St. Pierre, the UFC's dominant welterweight champion, announced via Twitter this past week that he's been cleared to fight uh, Carlos Condit coming up here in November. So we'll, we'll be talking about that. And in round three, uh, Frankie Edgar goes to featherweight. It, it was also recently announced that uh, I believe at UFC 153, which is coming yes. right up, Frankie Edgar is going to challenge Jose Aldo for the uh, UFC featherweight title. So we will be talking about all of that. First, though, before we start all of that funny business, uh, as usual, we put out the call this week for you guys to send us some listener mail, and you responded with, with a, a gaggle of, of excellent questions. So uh, we're going to get into that right now. And, in fact, we're going to add a bonus question this week. We yeah. normally only do three, but because... Because how long are we really going to yell about Tim Sylvia and Andre Lowski? Not we'll, that long. We'll only have to see. Well, there's only <laughs> one way to find out. Uh, to the first question this week comes from Tony Garnett who asks, uh, the UFC commentary can be insufferable at times. The next time Aaron Simpson, Ryan Bader, or Cain Velasquez fight, drink every time you hear Goldie tell you about their friendship uh, with each other or ASU wrestling background. Same for how many times Goldberg mentions Richard Perez when the Diaz brothers fight. I guarantee you that you'll die of alcohol poisoning before their fight ends. Is there a question coming? There is. It's, it's right here. My question. Oh, okay. Semicolon. Uh, using the current crop of commentators from the UFC pay-per-views, UFC 
on FX slash Fuel and Strikeforce, who would be your ideal three-man commentary team? Now, here's the thing That's about That's actually this. a good question it, after it is, a long preamble to get is, there. It is a good question, and I was going to say, after the long preamble, it's strange that he didn't even mention what I consider to be the biggest failing, uh, by and large, of the UFC broadcast team, uh, and that is... Failing uh, to talk us through the Mickey's replay? No, that part's awesome. Okay. That week, week in and week out, that part is awesome. And I don't want to dump all over Goldberg and Rogan because I don't dislike those guys, as I guess we'll talk about in a second when we talk about what our, what our dream commentary booth would be. But the biggest failing of the UFC broadcast team is their willingness to, sometimes before the fight even begins, pick out a storyline and or sometimes even the guy who they think is going to win. And just ride that horse into the ground. Yeah. It is just crazy sometimes the way they do that. But uh, specifically toward the question, uh, picking a UFC or indeed MMA broadcast team is, uh, I don't know, man. It's not easy, really. I wouldn't say that there are a ton of, like, over-the-top awesome broadcasters out there doing MMA. I think that there are a lot of good ones. Uh, I don't mind Goldberg, despite the fact that for a guy who – who calls events on television for a living. He has some of the strangest syntax. He's like a speak and spell. <laughs> he has a little bit, you know, the, those voice patterns are so, it's like a, like, a, like a sports talk football video game or something where you can just kind of program it in there and you know exactly how he's going to say it. Uh, but I feel like you're dodging the question. No, I'm I not. Feel like you're... I was just building up to it. Okay. Are you... there's, there's a number of broad... Give me three names, Dennis. Right, there's a number of broadcasters in MMA that I like. I am going to go with, uh, on play-by-play, I'm going to go uh, John Anik, the, uh, the play-by-play announcer who, who typically does the UFC on, on Fuel broadcast. Does he do UFC on FX, too? They, they give that to Goldberg and Rogan, right? Yeah, I think maybe it depends on what the schedule is like and who has to be where, but I think he just does Fuel. Yeah. On color commentary, I'm going to put Pat Militich in the booth, uh, Strike Force color, color commentator, okay. Pat Militich. Yeah. Uh, and for a third man, which I guess is a little unorthodox, but I guess we're going with a strike force style three man booth. Yeah. So the guy in the Frank Shamrock role, I guess I'm going to throw, uh, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to throw Chael Sonnen out there, even though we've only seen him at the desk before, but I feel like he's, he's such a natural that I feel like he would blend right into that, you, to that role. So, so what you're doing is you're out of a three man commentary team. You want two fighters. You want two-thirds of the commentary team to be fighters and not professional broadcasters. Well, what would you do? I mean, there's... Here's it, what I'd do. Is there and a, I'm not going to fuck around the, with a bunch of bullshit first before I say my three names. I'm just going to drop it on you. All right. Boom. John Anik. Okay. You kind of stole my thunder there, and okay. you also stole it with Pat Militich, but Pat Militich is a given. I feel like you ask anybody who they're, who's on their commentary team, yeah. they're an idiot if they he's, don't put Pat the Militich on there. And then, the third, I'm going to say Joe Rogan, because I feel like if he's sitting there next to Pat Militich, just Pat's presence... The presence of a venerable elder statesman of MMA like that will rein in some of Joe's worst tendencies, uh, okay. which is to mark out over jujitsu guys or, you know, maybe be a little too much of try and play a little too much of Johnny expert when it comes to technique stuff. If you got Pat Militant sitting there, who is, I think, the best in the business when it comes to uh, describing technically what's happening but without it sounding too technical or without him trying to show off any kind of knowledge he can he can make sense of it for just about anybody uh i feel like maybe backstage you have moro ronaldo doing interviews or something and boom you got it you got it you got yourself a dream team so two-thirds of our broadcast team is the same we disagree on the presence of joe rogan uh 
The next question this week comes from Jay, who asks, Do you think that Chuck Liddell in his heyday, when he was overhand writing dudes into oblivion numerous times, could have been the heavyweight champ? Keep in mind that the heavyweight champ at the time was Tim Sylvia, who had recently crapped his pants on live television. Oh, come on, Jay. I know. Is I that necessary? He's still Jay going on. I think Liddell would have beat the bricks off pretty much every UFC heavyweight circa 2004 to 2006, except maybe Mir. What are your guys' thoughts? Now, beat the bricks off? Is that a, is that a phrase? It is now. Okay. I didn't make it up. It's there in the email. Yeah. Okay. Uh, I mean, come on, Ben, ben alluded to this a, maybe a second ago, but when you ask us this question, the question that you're really asking us is, was Tim Sylvia the shittiest UFC champion <laughs> of all time? And even though it feels bad to dump on the guy, because I have a feeling we're going to do it for about 10 minutes in a row coming up in round number one. Yes, obviously, Tim Sylvia was the shittiest UFC heavyweight champion of all time, because like a 43-year-old Randy Couture decided he was going to up and come out of retirement to fight Tim Sylvia. Specifically, specifically because to Tim fight was Tim Sylvia at a, at a higher weight class and then came out and whipped the shit out of him. <laughs> so I guess the short answer to your question, yes, probably Chuck Liddell could have gone out there with his ponderous step, 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 overhand right offense and defeated the UFC heavyweight champion, Tim Sylvia. Not that I think that that is a tremendous compliment. Yeah, but, uh, I mean, at the same time, I think that, uh, I think maybe Chuck Liddell is going to be a a Ted Williams kind of figure in MMA where I think we might remember him as maybe better than he was as the years go by. Yeah, actually, I feel like you're trying to bait me into exposing my biases here on the <laughs> podcast. No, uh, we know that you're a, you're a Randy Couture guy from, from way back. Yeah, it goes deeper than that, though. You, you love you some Oregon wrestlers. It's true, it's true. It goes deeper than that, though, because I, Chuck Liddell's fine. I've never disliked Chuck Liddell, but I, I've never gotten Chuck Liddell the same way that a large percentage of MMA fans from the time just seemed to go fucking gaga for the guy. You know, it did seem like around 2005, you could tell the MMA fan base was kind of splitting a little bit uh, by the Chuck Liddell, Randy Couture trilogy of fights. And it kind of seemed to me, and this is going to be an unfair statement of me to make, but I'm going to make it anyway, that the just kind of the, the bros were more likely to be Chuck Liddell fans. Yes. Uh, and the people who had, you know, been following MMA for a long time and tended to be more into actually, you know, martial arts and actually doing stuff, uh, maybe were more Randy Couture fans. Yeah, uh, and when you say bros, you mean the UFC ownership group because those <laughs> dudes were just in the bag for Liddell in a... Yeah. I well, mean, they were just going to keep giving him light heavyweight title shots until he won one. But it's I like, mean, let's be honest. I, I go to a, a UFC expo now, and it's guaranteed that I'm going to see a toddler with the Chuck Liddell faux hawk. The Chuck Hawk. Yeah, probably and, the worst side effect of, the, of Chuck Liddell's MMA yeah. career is that haircut now <laughs> is a thing in our culture. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, do what you want with that. But uh, there it is. Long story short, yeah, Chuck Little probably could have been heavyweight champ. Whatever. Next uh, question. The third question this week comes from Nicholas Pickles. I'm probably slaughtering the pronunciation of his last name. I'm going to say not his real name. That's how it looks to me on the, on the page. Uh, he asks, 
was wondering what your take is when fighters claim that X percent of fighters use PEDs. The numbers are never the same from fighter to fighter and no one ever throws out names. Do you think those fighters are, are accurate in any way or are they taking, are they talking just for the sake of talking? Um, well, clearly no one knows, right? Yeah. Like it's an impossible could, number yeah, to, yes. to hit on the nose. And, you know, and I think feel like this is true in almost all professional sports. And that is, it kind of always surprises me how little professional MMA fighters know about professional MMA fighting in certain instances. Obviously there's guys who are real students of the game and, and watch everything and know, and know it all. But like, you know, typically I would say in sports fans, care about stuff more than the actual yeah or, or just care about talking about the different i mean fighters will gossip about each other uh but have way different motivations and gossip about much different things than uh what the fans usually tend to do but you will sometimes hear a fighter who will say like oh i think you know 60 percent of all mma fighters are on PED. and it's always the guys who are going to tell you that it's never them you know right. or anybody they know yeah. uh same thing though i noticed recently uh and I noticed it. I talked to uh, Rosie Sexton for a story, and she was talking about having fought Karina Dom, I think, two years before she p- tested positive for steroids. And uh, nothing against Rosie Sexton. It seems like a, a really smart, smart woman uh, and was a, a fun person to talk to. But she did the thing that everybody seems to do after they fought somebody who, either in that fight or in a later fight, has been busted for steroids. is to talk about how their strength was just incredible. <laughs> like, you, you know, in... Uh, who who was it that that Mo Lawal beat? Uh, and then, God, I can't remember his name right now. Dude, Mo Lawal beat, and then when he tested positive for steroids. Yeah. Uh, God. Was that the Gracie fight or the? No. Uh, then you got me. I don't yeah. Know. Okay. Should have looked that up before uh, we started yeah. recording. Uh, but uh, I, you hear so many guys that they'll do it when they'll be. Or uh, Brandon Vera said it about uh, Tiago Silva. Like, oh man, the strength. I just never felt any strength like that. Oh, I guess I should I should have known that that was just not natural strength. And you'll yeah, never but hear Brandon anybody. Brandon also made that video after he lost to John okay. Jones, where he was like, "But it's a common thing." Is my you point? You got me. Jones. You you will never you'll never hear uh, anybody when they just get beat up in a fight. Like, let's say they don't know yet that the dude is to pop positive. No one will ever be like, man, he was just so much stronger than me. <laughs> he just physically overpowered me. I don't understand. That never happens. And yet, as soon as they know that the dude was, was uh, on steroids or have reason to suspect that he was or can, you know, point to any kind of thing, even if it's years later, a positive test, then suddenly it's like, well, I knew something was up because no one is ever that much stronger than me. Right. That just couldn't happen. Yeah. And and I I knew I knew that was artificial. I'm like the strongest person in the world. <laughs> uh, well, here's the co-main event podcast on the spot question. What do you think the percentage is? Like, if you just we're both just taking wild guesses at this because, as we said at the top of the conversation, nobody fucking knows. But yeah, like, what do you think? Like, if you just had to throw a dart at a dartboard, shit, I don't know, what? fifty, forty. Wow, that's high. <laughs> well, you know, I think one of the things that we don't think about or talk about often enough is that. The good stuff that you're more likely to be able to get away with, most of the guys can't afford. Right. The guys who get popped, I think, are the guys, you know, if you're using, you know, Winstrol or something. Right. Uh, because that stuff is probably going to be a little bit cheaper than, you know, pure testosterone or HGH or something. Right. Uh, and maybe they're also the guys who don't have the best advice on how to use it without getting caught. It always th- makes me a little bit sad when a guy gets caught, a guy or a girl gets <laughs> caught for using one of the like hardcore old school bodybuilding drugs yeah. because it's just like, 
man, why don't you just get on the HGH, yeah. man? Come or on. you're like, A, how much is that really going to help you? And B, don't you notice that that's always the shit people get caught for? Yeah. But uh, I also, it's like if you can afford some great trainer uh, who knows all this stuff and you can afford to do your own testing to make sure that you're not going to get caught. Uh, but now it's like, uh, as long as you can get a, a, a therapeutic use exemption, you don't need to cheat. You can just do it right out there in the open. Yeah. Just get you some testosterone. I was going to say 30, which I thought was going to be the highest number. Well, we're just saying shit anyway. Yeah, so. what else do we? That's what we do. That's our thing. Okay. But I think the the thing, too, is that uh, when we talk about, you know, okay, this percentage of people are on PEDs, this, you know, it's, it's one of those things where, uh, for all we know, it could be so goddamn rampant. I mean, you will hear fighters talk about other fighters and, oh, I think this guy is on it or something. And you never know what to make of that because... On one hand, if they get beat by somebody or if somebody is, is doing more, doing better in their career than they are, you know how fighters are. they got to come up with, with an excuse. they got to yeah. come up with something to tell themselves. I mean, that's like a defense mechanism, but they're so good at it. Right. They're so good at coming. You know, Almost mean, like they have years of training yeah. <laughs> in, in that particular regard. But, you know, I mean, the, one of the things that I think is always a difference between a regular person and a, a pro fighter kind of person mentally. Like, you know, Lloyd Woodard, who, who fights in Bellator – Missoula, Missoula boy, Lloyd that's right, Woodard. That's right. The original uh, cupcake. The original cupcake, Lloyd Woodard. Uh, I remember, you know, training with him in jiu-jitsu back when we were in grad school, and he was just kind of learning uh, martial arts and stuff, and he had done some boxing. But he's one of those people who, as soon as he starts learning jiu-jitsu, picks it up way faster than everybody else and makes you feel bad about yourself. But when I would grapple with him, and I had been doing jiu-jitsu a little longer, but, you know, sometimes he'd catch me in a submission, and sometimes I'd catch him. But whenever I caught him, he seemed to have the attitude of, "Well, that was weird. Let's go again. I, that, that couldn't have been, that couldn't have been what was supposed to happen." But then every time he caught me, it'd be like, "Okay, well, there we go. The natural order is restored." <laughs> uh, and yet, and I could never, even if I tried to get myself to think that way, I could never get myself to think that way. I would go into it thinking, "Well, sometimes you're going to catch me, and sometimes I'm going to catch you." Uh, and the better you get, and the more time you spend doing this, the less I'm going to catch you. Uh, you know, that's just kind of something that has to be built in there. And I think. It, probably has the, the same effect when they start estimating how many of their colleagues yeah. might be artificially enhanced. I do think, though, like if the true number came out of guys who are using performance-enhancing drugs in all of sports, that it would probably shock the average sports fan, especially in the other sports where guys are super rich, because you have to assume that those guys, that some of those guys are taking stuff that we don't even know is invented. That, like... <laughs> Because, like, when Bonds... Nuke? Like in RoboCop? Yeah, Duke and taking Nuke, like in, what is that, RoboCop 2? I think it's RoboCop 2. Yeah. Uh, when Bonds was on the cream in the clear, like, nobody really knew that that was even a thing, that that was out there. So, I mean, at this point, you got to assume that the, the technology is still outpacing the, the testing, uh, which will probably always be the case, unfortunately. I mean, if that were true, then I don't know if, if so many guys would be getting on testosterone and stuff, because then you have to put it out there and, and let everybody know that you're on it. I mean, I think that kind of makes it to where, if you're a fighter... Over 30, you don't even really need to, to cheat. Yeah, and if you get just the money, you first. can just take the HGH, which they're still there not testing for. So 100% of guys could be on that as far <laughs> as we know. Uh, the last question today comes from Martin Lindgren. He asks, who is the most intelligent MMA fighter inside the cage and who is the most intelligent MMA fighter outside the ring? Uh, what defines an intelligent MMA fighter? Huh. Good question. Uh, as far as outside the cage, just when you're talking to a guy and you, you get a sense of uh, his intelligence, i got to put Dan Hardy up there. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Um, 
and Danny Downs, who I have not met personally, but is a is a guy who listens to the show and is active on social media, also seems like a very he does, smart he guy. He does seem like a smart guy. There and there's you know there's different kinds of smarts out there too. There like Randy Couture, I think, is a guy who was who always came off as as very smart for a fighter and, and very smart in a uh, you know was always able to kind of sound uh, uh, intelligent and 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 you know was was good with the words on on camera, but was a guy who when you take a look at the personal life. Made a lot of decisions that yeah. you would would not say typified a, a super took, smart dude. Took some chances. <laughs> yeah, rolled the dice a few times. Yeah. There. You know who I thought, as far as in in the fight intelligence, fight IQ, if you will, uh, and weirdly, some there, I can think of his most high profile fights refuting the point I'm about to make. But I think Uriah Faber hmm. uh, is up there as a, as a guy who, uh, when it comes to making on the fly adjustments, you know, uh, from round one to round two, that kind of stuff, uh, especially important when you know, you only have three round fights. Uh, I think uh, he's a guy who's up there that, that can really maybe put that, that veteran savvy to use at times. But then you see some of like, his title fights where either you know, his legs get shredded too early on for him to really do what he likes to do, or maybe he doesn't realize that's going the way it is. Uh, and sometimes, I guess, even your, your high fight IQ is not enough to make up for physical advantages the other guy might have but uh, he has always struck me as somebody who is, does not just go out there and do one thing the entire time i was gonna say george st pierre i feel like yeah. he has learned from every every time he goes out and has a rough experience i feel like he's learned from that uh kind of almost to his detriment in terms of like his popularity because i think when he got knocked out by matt sarah at, at ufc 69 uh he that really kind of taught him a lesson about toying with guys on the feet if he thought that they were not as as you know talented as he was and since then he's been a very you know ground and pound control based fighter um but he's also a guy who seems like when he goes out and fights uh, fights an opponent he will very much tailor his game plan to like take away that other guy's strengths yes you know when he fights josh koscheck he pretty much fights him on the feet and and just kind of jabs the shit out of him and so i was going to say him i feel like he is a guy who's an example of of an mma fighter who it's almost he's kind of continually getting better and and learns from things when it when it goes bad for him out there. Yeah, good point. Uh, so that's listener mail for this week. If you have a question, comment, concern, or otherwise want to contact us, uh, you can go to the website comaineventpodcast.com, Click the link at the top of the page that says email the podcast, and uh, one of us will will review the emails and and the best questions will make it on the air. Uh, next week and it should be noted that we have a couple of weeks coming up here before the next big time ufc show so we're probably going to be doing a little bit more listener mail than than we do when it's really hot and heavy with uh with shows every week so yeah we got to do something so you can be like a uh, nicholas Pickles, yeah uh and get your fake name on our podcast yeah. so shoot hit us up with a question anyway uh round number one we're going to be talking about one fc this weekend and the all the craziness that ensued from the tim sylvia andre arlovsky fight and that is going to start right now round one Well, if they didn't get the message this time, it seems like they they just aren't going to get it. As uh, karma and the universe 
conspired to have the Tim Sylvia Andre Arlovsky fight from 1FC this weekend and the most Tim Sylvia versus Andre Arlovsky <laughs> possible way uh, when Andre Arlovsky floored Tim Sylvia with punches and then apparently did not check with the referee in time before uh, launching into a couple of soccer kicks toward Tim Sylvia, which ultimately resulted in the fight ending in a no contest. Um, it, seemed, it would seem like a really good time to just, just cut your losses and move on yeah, for both that, these guys. That is to what me. I feel like. I mean, how better to end this than on a no contest? Yeah, That's exactly. That's the perfect ending. But it seems like uh, from what they're saying, we're going to come back and get Arlovsky versus Sylvia 5 at some point. Oh, Jesus Christ. I, I mean, a no contest, the only more perfect ending could be if they both simultaneously landed punches that and then they both evaporated into energy and gas. What if they both into came out of energy and gas? And it was that thing like at the end of Rocky, Rocky Two, I think, where it just or is it Rocky Three that ends where Apollo Creed and and yes. Rocky get in the ring together? And it's a freeze and frame. It, it just kind of freezes right before they hit each other. Yeah. Now that would have been a great end. I that mean, this is awesome. basically this is the closest real life ending you can get to that, yeah. isn't it? Yeah, for sure. And I would think you know, especially if you're Tim Sylvia, you just kind of want to. To take this one walking away, wouldn't you? <laughs> to use to use my catchphrase in a slightly different iteration. Yeah, you, you might. You might. That could be the. That looked like the best outcome Tim Sylvia was going to get. The way things were going there. Also, though, we see one FC doing the same kind of thing that we've seen a lot of other non UFC promotions do, yeah. which is like you're you're kind of left with two choices. Either you groom the up and coming guys and try to build them into like a recognizable star, which comes with the problem that then eventually it doesn't take long before everyone's asking, but how would those guys do in the UFC? When are we going to see them in the UFC? And then, you know, those guys want to get in the UFC too. So you have that problem. Or you take guys that have kind of dropped out the bottom of the UFC uh, and try and and rekindle some kind of flame of recognition uh, among the fans for them. Neither one of them is a really a good place to be. I mean, I don't know what yeah. an organization like 1FC is supposed to do there. Yeah, and for a guy like Tim Sylvia, you would have to think that it was a pretty telling sign here recently when the rumors broke out that they were talking about bringing him back into strike force, and then it turned out that that was you know, not, not necessarily the case. And then I think it was in an interview with Ariel that Dana White kind of uh, – you know, intimated that Sean Shelby had been talking to Tim Sylvia about a return. And then when Dana White found out about it, he kind of put the kibosh on it as if to say, man, Tim Sylvia, you are not coming back to the to the, you know, the family. You're not going to be welcomed back into the flock to the to the Zufa LLC family, which, you know, kind of kind of leads you to wonder why why keep it up? You know, well, you know, the thing it seems like Tim Sylvia at this point, it's like the Tim Sylvia brand is so damaged that it doesn't really matter what he does in the cage yeah. to a lot of people. They just think of him as Tim Sylvia, like, punchline. Yeah. Uh, and maybe, I mean, it doesn't help to go out there and get knocked out by Ray Mercer and then be, you know... No, it does not. ...photographed looking sad in a wheelchair. and I mean, all that kind of <laughs> stuff. That, just, that spreads virally on the internet and gets people to start to think of you as if you're a joke, even though... And I think Pat Militich made a good point when he was saying that Tim Sylvia is... You know, as when you look at as far as natural gifts and then look at what he's accomplished, like he is really an overachiever uh, in a lot of ways. And yet, I don't know what it is about him that MMA fans have just kind of seized on. And it's like they found the the weak kid on the, the playground who is super good at math. But as soon as they get him out there on the basketball court where they can tease him and, and, and push him around, they can't help but do it. It doesn't matter if he actually is good at something. Uh, I mean... I feel bad for the guy in that sense. At the same time, I don't want to see Tim Sylvia Andrzejewski five. Are you kidding me? Yeah. 
Yeah, I know it's really easy to feel bad for both of these guys, I think. And you know what is actually an interesting thing to do? I did this almost by accident a couple years ago. Uh, just in light of how Tim Sylvia is viewed in the MMA community now, uh, which, as you said, is as kind of a joke, and it seems like he's he's full fully into that situation now where it doesn't really matter what he does. You're never going to be able to shake that that public image as like kind of a sad sack loser man go back and watch tim sylvia's ufc debut uh at ufc 39 he fights cabbage carrera now obviously what, no, what, no, what are you gonna say well, i was gonna say level of competition notwithstanding <laughs> like tim sylvia in that fight looks like a completely different individual than the tim sylvia you see now not just physically although he does look physically a whole hell of a lot better but like just in the way he fights he looks like a dangerous dangerous heavyweight in that fight just in the way that he uses his striking and mixes up combinations and just looks really impressive on his feet and and for me it was really shocking almost to watch that and and think man that you know tim sylvia once upon a time actually did in fact look like a really really good heavyweight when Remember you compare when, that now with the guy who gets in the cage and just kind of like does the old step step jab yeah. offense that i always refer to remember when he nearly decapitated trey telegman with a, a, a head kick yes uh, that was a scary one i mean he yeah he did and you obviously you can make the point about quality of competition in the ufc's heavyweight division back in those times uh but you know, he was. It's easy for us to do this revisionist history thing now. We're like, oh, he was just a a big dumb bastard who was bigger and dumber than all the other big dumb bastards. And so what? Then you know, the game caught up to him. I don't think it's quite as simple as that. Yeah. Uh, but it's it's this weird thing that happens, and we see it happen in different ways with other MMA fighters. I think John Jones is a good example, where MMA fans decide what they think about you. Yeah. And that's fucking it. And yeah. it's like the more it's like quicksand. The more you fight against it, the worse it gets. Yeah, the, for the sure. more inconstant you are. The best thing you could do, I guess, would be to go with it somehow. Uh, it's like if everybody comes up with a stupid, derisive nickname for you, the best thing you can do is start introducing yourself that way, uh, and then maybe takes the fun out of it. But I don't. Know, that's the kind of stuff where I'm like, it makes me feel like MMA fans are a bunch of mean kids on the internet. Wait a second. Are you trying to? advocate that a guy turn himself into a cartoon professional wrestling heel that just says crazy stuff to the media all the time and yeah, that never works yeah that would that wouldn't get you anywhere no. i'm sure in regards You'd be laughed out of the business yeah in regards to andre arlovsky like this is a guy like if you are a legitimate above board mma promoter if you're the ufc you can't ever put that guy back in a cage again right just out of sheer like fear for his safety and like well, you know it actually was he took a couple punches where you're like well, I would have expected Andre Olovsky to be asleep by now yeah, uh, just because of the way things had been going for him. So, I don't know. Maybe he's got some of that stuff figured out. But, yeah, there'll just be – it is, again, like the UFC doesn't want you because they see you as damaged goods and mm -hmm. there's really not a whole lot to gain there. And other promoters can just kind of promote you as the guy who used to fight in the UFC. Right. Uh, yeah, I don't, I don't know exactly like, what the end game is there for guys like that. I guess it's just to keep fighting each other over and over and over again until the earth opens up and swallows the both of you. Now, one of the side effects of this fight, I thought that that was uh, the most one of the most interesting was the way that that you know the MMA community seemed to respond to it as though it was an invitation to have a very earnest discussion about the rules in one FC, <laughs> which to me is sort of like watching one of those shitty movies really late at night on Showtime and then being like, well, you know, the plot kind of left something to be yeah. desired. I'm not, you know. Or like going to a, for example, a WCW event at the Adams Center and yelling at the referee about uh, having a really loose interpretation of the rules. 
that sounds like something I may have done <laughs> yes, in the past. It does. Yeah, I'm, you know, you're right though. I mean, a though those rules where because we saw them in in action also with the Roger Huerta fight at the last one right, I see yeah. where it's like, okay, you got to look to the, the referee and he'll be like, okay, kick that dude in the face. If there's time for that, that's the one time when the dude should not be kicked in the face under, under even the crazy pride rules. Yeah. If there's time to look over at the referee and have him be like, yes, this, this man has earned a kick to the face. Go ahead and do it. And the guy has not yet thought to bring his hands up in front of his face by then. Then... That should tell you alone that it's time to stop the fight. The time where the guy goes down and you jump on him and kick him in the face right away, that would seem like the time those rules are meant for. Like, it, that's the time when you should be able to soccer kick somebody because the fight's still going on, right? I mean, that's it seems like completely backwards to me. Yeah, and I guess, I mean, one of the questions is, if the rule is you have to check with the ref, I guess as an aside, I would say, just punch the guy, right? Because you don't have to check with the ref for that. So just like punch him in the face, you probably still win. But like, so the, the weird, the way the weird uh, outcome of the rules happened, it became a no contest, but I guess it should have been a win for Tim Sylvia or does it, because that just seems like the most ludicrous thing that could have possibly happened. So like the spirit of the rule seems a little weird once you start to, to view it that way. And also, I mean, haven't we learned that you're just not going to be able to do a whole lot of communicating mid-fight. <laughs> Especially, you know, you got uh, the the Japanese ref, Belarusian Andrei Olovsky, and Midwesterner. The maniac. The maniac. Or, yeah, Midwestern transplant from Maine, uh, Tim Sylvia. I mean, at that point, it'd be more effective, those three guys trying to communicate with smoke signals while punches are flying. Yeah. You know, that's just not a good time to try and let the guys know that the rules have suddenly changed. Yeah, you would have thought that like these small-time MMA promotions would have learned from the Yama pit not to try to reinvent the wheel. It just seems There's like... So much we can learn from Yama. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I don't know. Like 1FC, as we alluded to early, earlier, not on the verge of becoming a legitimate like competition to the UFC, right? Like I'm no. not even sure that this is an You're event. You're not waking up and paying for that and, on Friday morning. I mean, you'll watch the Yeah, no, the in, in when fact, when I found out that there was a stream of it on the internet, I tried to find it, and I did find it, and when it turned out that it cost nine ninety nine, I was like, oh, well, I'm not going to do that. I'll just wait six hours, and it'll be on YouTube. Uh, one thing we do have to mention, though, yes. uh, a big victory yes. for a uh, man of, of many words, the poet Philip Baroni. Poet Philip Baroni, FTW. It <laughs> goes out there. Gets just runs runs through Rodrigo Ribeiro in the first round. Now here's something I wanted to point out. Uh, obviously, we are all big fans of the poet Philip Broni's Twitter. Uh, mm, yes. Now he wins that fight on Friday, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, wait, for what would be Friday morning here in in the U.S. Yeah. And on what it would be Sunday afternoon here in the U.S. Full two days later after the fight. The poet Bill Baroni tweets the following. Right. I saw this. I saw this. Woke up to take a piss and remind everyone I'm still the fucking man. I ain't back. I never fucking left. Still big, still strong, and hashtag really fucking fast. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. In, that's incredible. And like after he won that fight, his Twitter for like the next 24 hours was just him retweeting 
uh, people essentially being like, fuck yeah, fuck yeah, <laughs> just like exclamation points all over the place. You get the sense that it almost might have been the best thing that could have happened for him if he had died in a drunken motorcycle accident like 16 hours after that win, just riding up just an incredible fucking high. I just and think- yelling out, I'm the fucking man, as he, <laughs> as he revs it up to 85. Down, down the streets of Thailand or something. Well, I think clearly the best thing that can happen to any of us is a win in the mixed martial arts arena for the poet Philip Baroni. Uh, that concludes our discussion of 1FC uh, this weekend. Before we go ahead and segue into round number two, uh, we'll do the time of the show uh, where we, we, we do Are You Fucking Kidding Me? A, a, a repeating segment on the show where... Uh, I don't know. It's self-explanatory, I guess. Yeah, you know, I think it, or it will we, be once we start. Yeah, shouting. I think we can just do it, and people will will get the message. Ben, do you do you want to go first? Yeah, uh, you know the the UFC uh, when they canceled the event, and I was alerted to this when I was putting together the story for uh, uh, MMA Junkie about what people did uh, who had gone to Las Vegas and, uh, and didn't have a fight to go watch, uh, and. One uh, Duncan Price, a a fan from London, alerted me that the UFC had sent out an email with a link to a web article called 15 Things That You Can Do, you know, since UFC 151 isn't happening. Some of those things, huh. real things, like go see a Tough Enough show that was on Sunday night or go see Randy Couture autograph signing. Others of the things, uh, go see The Expendables 2, which Randy Couture is in. Okay. Watch right. old episodes of The Ultimate Fighter online That's to get I you did. ready for the next season of The Ultimate right. Fighter, of course. That's what I did. Um, watch some free fights that they had online and check out John Jones's YouTube page. Wow. If I'm John Jones, I probably don't want the UFC putting people onto my right. YouTube page yeah. this weekend. Unless comments are disabled. Right. The point is, though, and this was, you know, the guy said it felt like a slap in the face to him who had flown over 5,000 miles to see a UFC that wasn't happening. Uh, and then they sent out an email that basically says, oh, watch the Internet. Now, I understand how it is when you work for a website and you got to come up with content, especially at a difficult time like this. I, I've been there in that situation before. Maybe don't say 15 things if you think you can only come up with six good ones. But come on, telling people to sit around and watch the internet, watch old episodes of The Ultimate Fighter, uh, as if somehow that's a replacement for the event that the UFC canceled? Are you fucking kidding me? Are you fucking kidding me? Uh, not to just continually give your employer, MMA Junkie, props on our on our podcast, but... I Although it like is nice of them to put the link up on the website. It is nice of them to do that. And I feel like p- people should go to the to the website and read Stephen Morocco's story about Bellator and the fallout uh, yes. from Tyson Nam uh, defeating Eduardo Dantes. Because my Are You Fucking Kidding Me goes out to Bellator this week. It seems like they, they signed this kid for a replacement bout sometime in the past. Ended up not using him emailed him to tell him that his that they were letting him out of his contract then he goes out and gets this huge win and uh, apparently gets uh gets the opportunity to go fight elsewhere in other quote-unquote big time promotions uh i can't imagine where that would be uh and now at least according to his manager and the fight camp itself bellator has threatened him and and is trying to sue him maybe and and just trying to say that he's still under contract so for me this week bellator man are you fucking kidding me you fucking kidding me are you fucking kidding me bellator fucking kidding me anyway that's are you fucking kidding me this week uh we'll do it again next week maybe for feeling like it but right now we're gonna go ahead and segue directly into round number two <laughs> Two. 
Amid a week of otherwise fairly gloomy and doomy news uh, in mixed martial arts, we got we got a good some good news as well. Uh, just a, a glimmer of optimism for everyone out there with uh, UFC welterweight champion George St. Pierre announcing via his Twitter that he's been medically cleared to return and that he's starting his training camp in order to fight interim champion Carlos Condit coming up at, where do they fight at, UFC 154? The, the plan, I think, right now is UFC 154 in November in Montreal. In Montreal. So, yeah, that, that's got to be considered good news, right? We've got... You know, uh, uh, at a time when they when they probably need the gold to be on the line, and when they need a, a champion that everyone can get behind, uh, we're, we, we've got the prospect of a really good fight. I think between Carlos Condit and George St. Pierre. I don't know if George St. Pierre really is the champion that everyone can get behind. I think George St. Pierre still, uh, like you said, this for the same reasons that we think he's a a smart fighter, uh, not the, necessarily the most popular fighter. I wonder. Outside of Canada, how well a AGSP Carlos Condit fight is going to do. But I am glad to see George St. Pierre coming back, especially because now we can stop yelling at Carlos Condit about being the interim champ that does not put the belt on the line. Because yeah, well, that is bullshit. Well, fun. Yes, it is. We, we both agree on that. A guy who doesn't defend the title before the actual champion comes back is not really an interim champion. He is merely the number one contender with a gold belt on the wall at his house. Wait, um, but I mean, am I the only one thinking like, what I want is George St. Pierre and Nick Diaz. I don't, you know, George no, St. Pierre yeah, and Carlos Condit is like, okay, I'll take that. And that's, you know, hey, if that's the one that, that we got to do, let's go ahead and do that one. But if that, I, I want to see George St. Pierre, Nick Diaz, I think more than I want to see George St. Pierre, Anderson Silva. I wow. feel like that's a real, like, weight class bout. The other one, it's like if George St. Pierre goes up and loses to Anderson Silva, then you're like, okay, fine. I mean, you'll, you lost to a bigger champion in, yeah. in, in a higher weight class. I don't really hold that against you. I, I see the, the GSP Nick Diaz one as the, the last big welterweight fight for GSP. Yeah, no, you're right. And it's not that I wouldn't be excited about George St. Pierre Anderson Silva, but I, I feel like a couple of things really undermine the idea of that fight. For The first one being the notion of Anderson Silva versus John Jones, which I feel like in the in the mind's eye of the MMA public kind of replaced the that fight as the super fight that everyone wanted to see. Now that we know, you know, now that we've come upon this idea, even though it's never going to happen, I don't think John Jones and Anderson Silva are ever going to fight, it kind of makes Anderson Silva and George St. Pierre seem second best in a way in terms of like crazy fantasy super fights, even if that makes us all seem a little bit jaded as fans. Um, the second thing that has always bothered me about the Anderson Silva, George St. Pierre super fight is the notion that, and George St. Pierre has said this all along, but the notion that if he goes up to middleweight, he would not come back to welterweight Yeah, because I feel like even by, if by some weird twist that George St. Pierre upset Anderson Silva and won the middleweight title, uh, I don't know that he would be that great of a middleweight, uh, you know, long term. But he has to take some time to pack on the weight because he never take the steroid. Right. Yeah. You he heard has, him when he said that. He right? has to do it naturally, as they he, told us on a UFC broadcast. He never take the steroid. I'm not sure what other way they were thinking he might do it, but <laughs> you know, wh- whatever. Uh, yeah, because I wouldn't it be a total bummer to lose George St. Pierre's dominance at welterweight, have him go up to middleweight and lose to some, you know, lose to Mark Munoz maybe. Uh, you know, you, well, here's the thing. I wonder just how how much longer George St. Pierre is going to do this because he's he's 31. You know, you come off the, the ACL injury mm-hmm. and maybe like that's the time. I mean, maybe it's just one of those out of the blue ligament tears that can happen to anybody or maybe it's 
guy pushing himself in the gym hard for years and years and years and might be the very beginning of showing some signs of wear there. Uh, but he has also seemed like he is too smart to stay in this shit till he's 40. And yeah. like he doesn't want to. And here's the thing. When uh, when I was writing that series on the, the Grudge Gym and talking to Nate Marquardt about it, he said that when he wanted to, when he was back when he was still at the UFC and when he wanted to move down to welterweight, uh, before when he told the UFC that, they said, you have to agree that you would fight GSP if it came down to it, even though you guys are you know, occasional training partners and teammates. Uh, and he said he called up GSP and he said, look, this is the way, this is the ultimatum they put to me. And GSP told him, at least according to Marquardt, according to what Marquardt told me, GSP told him, uh, go ahead and say whatever you need to say. Because by the time you know you get to that point, either I won't be at welterweight anymore or I, I may be retired. That's I won't be around anymore at the USC's welterweight division one way or another. Yeah, I mean, the thing that makes me wonder about that, though, is we, I guess at the top of the show, I talked about George St. Pierre as a guy who I thought was a really smart MMA fighter inside the cage. I'm not sure that George St. Pierre, the person as an individual, seems like the guy who's going to like start a ton of businesses and be super successful in his post post fight career. I mean, it's you know maybe he could just market like exercise tapes. He's got that skin cream or something. Seems to be the thing that he's really into. Maybe he could get his own line of like jewelry or something. I don't know, but he just doesn't. I mean, you know, as much as we talk about him being a bright guy, he kind of seems like a fighter, and I'm not sure what else he would do. So we've seen in the past. Lots of guys have a really hard time walking away from the sport, walking away from the, you know, the, 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 the cheering of the fans, et cetera, et cetera, walking away from probably just the rush of getting in there and fighting another grown man with your bare hands for money. But I don't know. It could cut either way for me. I could see George St. Pierre being the kind of guy who, who might walk away, you know, in, in his early 30s. But I could also I wouldn't have a hard time believing that he's, you know, hanging around fighting guys when he's 36, 37 years old either. Men's jewelry, that is the yeah, no, that that's the cash one. crop there. Yeah, chains and whatnot. Yeah, chains and weird watches. Yeah, yeah, really play to the to the crowd north of the border. Uh huh. The uh, the European gentleman. Yeah. And the, uh, no, we would. I'm sure Canadian we would think of George St. Pierre and his fortune circuit. as pre men's jewelry line and post men's jewelry <laughs> line. Just be vastly different lifestyles for him. But you know, uh, Dana White has said before that that George St. Pierre is hands down their best pay-per-view draw, uh, regardless of what anyone thinks they see or, or says about the way the pay-per-view numbers work. That, right. That George St. Which Pierre. Which is why at the top of the round I said maybe he's the champion people can get behind, and you were like, well, I don't know about well, I don't that. Know to if, me, if, it seems like nobody likes people, him. Just because people my paid, folks paid, paid <laughs> I'm the penguin, basically? <laughs> I've been working on I'm, it. I'm Dick Cheney? I think you'll find when you play it back, it sounds very really true to life. <laughs> well, just because people are paying to see the pay-per-views you're on doesn't mean that they've all gotten behind you as champ. I think there's a, a sizable contingent of people out there who are not big George St. Pierre fans, uh, but do keep turn, tuning in, hoping somebody's going to do something terrible to him. Well, that still means that, you, essentially, you got behind him as champ. Whatever. No, it doesn't. It does. It means the opposite of that. Uh, the thing is, when George St. Pierre does decide to walk away, whether it's two years from now or you know nine or ten years from now, uh, how, how much do you think it hurts the, the USC to lose George St. Pierre? Especially, you know, they... The Canadian fans are we know are diehard fans. They love them some MMA, but they really love them some GSP. And plus, you know, you get that nice women's demographic bump when you have GSP around. Let's face it, 
ladies love them some GSP. Yeah. What do we it's lose because when of we the male jewelry, <laughs> it's the chains and whatnot. and the skin cream? Yeah. What do we lose when we lose GSP? Oh, I think you lose a lot if you're the UFC. And if I was the UFC, I think I might be just a little bit nervous right now about the prospect of of losing Saint Pierre early if that came to pass, and the prospect of losing Anderson Silva, which whether we like it or not is going to happen here in the next couple years. Uh, John Jones not necessarily. Uh, finding a home or being a proven pay-per-view draw, although I think he's just now starting to cross over to that point where a lot of people are going to buy pay-per-views with the hope of watching him get beat. Um, and, and you know, it seems like the guys at the lighter weight classes are having some, you know, maybe not at lightweight, but the guys at, at like featherweight and bantamweight and certainly flyweight, I think, are, are unproven commodities. I don't think yeah. you can pin the hopes of an entire pay-per-view on those guys yet. Uh, so, I mean, when you look at it, you've got... Junior Dos Santos, and you've got John Jones, and the rest of it could be up for grabs with a very uncertain future, especially if George St. Pierre were to, were to decide to walk away in his prime. So if I were the UFC, I'd be really concerned about that. Yeah, fair I, point. I might even try to make it worth his while to stick around for a while rather than go slaying the male jewelry and the face yeah, cream. at least long enough to fight Nick Diaz in the fight that will make the internet explode yeah that is still the fight i feel like a lot of us want to see and a fight that would ultimately prove to be totally awesome let's talk about the acl injury just a little bit before we wrap it up uh the acl remains i believe some of the body's trickiest soft tissues uh oh it is not dr chad dundas is gonna weigh in here <laughs> oh that's a broken arm i can tell just by when it happens <laughs> broken on, orbital when it broken happens orbital. on the screen uh you know the the acl is not the devastating career ender that it once was medical science has come a long way particularly in that in that area and that injury because it's so common uh for athletes for a guy like george st pierre though I i feel like it is kind of a concern because so much of his game uh, at least post UFC 69 has been reliant on the explosive takedown and his ability to kind of blow guys off their base and then control them from the top and impose his will on them. Uh, it, it makes me nervous that we've we've all kind of lauded and, and this entire time he has made it clear that he was going to return from this injury in lightning quick fashion and that apparently seems to be exactly what's happened Uh, a lot of guys when you talk to them about these injuries this injury specifically the ACL a lot of athletes will say that the very last thing to come back is your confidence and your ability to really feel like you can trust that knee uh, to 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 be the where it was before the injury. Football players talk about their you know they, they don't cut the same because they just don't have the confidence in the leg. I wonder if George St. Pierre hurrying back from the injury and then coming into immediately into this interim title fight or title unification fight, I guess if you want to call it that against Carlos Condit, uh, this will be maybe as vulnerable as we've seen him for a long time, right? Yeah, well, just the layoff. Also, you you add to that plus. Uh, I mean, as you said, with confidence, and it's not just confidence as far as can I shoot in there uh, for that blast double during the fight, but you know, this is a guy who, what we're told, does a, a ton of wrestling in training, and maybe if he decides, well, if I've already said, if I've already targeted this date in Montreal, and this is the same kind of thing that we saw with Cain Velasquez when he was uh, kind of pressured into that UFC on Fox 1 fight with Junior Dos Santos, and there was a lot of talk about him having a knee injury and being hurt going into that, but it was just kind of seen as you can't pull out of this one. Right. You got to fight it. And George St. Pierre at the top of a card uh, in Montreal, especially with all the trouble the UFC has had with injuries, you got to think what happens if it's you know early October and he's like, man, it's not feeling the same in training. I, I just I don't have the confidence in it. Uh, I, I'm not able to do the same things I was. I feel like I need a little bit more time. 
that seems like one where the UFC would have a hard time being like, yeah, hey, sure, we'll push it back for you, buddy. Right. We got a, we got a card coming up in Columbus or something. We'll right. we'll put you on that one. Especially uh, right now, which yeah. is a topic I think we're going to discuss a little bit more at length coming up in round three. But yeah, I feel like, especially St. Pierre has always seemed like such a company guy. He yeah. seems like the kind of guy who's going to go out there and fight cars. And he no knows what. that the fans in Montreal are going to want to see him fight, so he's going to want to fight for those fans uh, and you know, going to want to put on that show, that return fight in his backyard there for them. So it feels like there could be a lot of pressures that might make a guy make some decisions he shouldn't. Yeah. It'll be interesting to see what happens when he gets in there. I still think that it's good to have the guy back, even if it did happen. Hashtag super fucking fast. (laughs) Anyway, that's our discussion on George St. Pierre this week. Uh, We're going to go ahead right now. And in just a few seconds, we're going to get right into round number three. So Frankie Edgar will, in fact, make the long-awaited move down to 145 pounds on the heels of the do-over with Ben Henderson and and affirming the fact that he's no longer the lightweight champion. Ben, I am surprised from what I, I... sense to be the general reaction on Twitter that lots of people aren't giving Frankie Edgar much of a shot in this fight, that that a lot of people think he's going to get his clock cleaned by Jose Aldo. I think that's a weird thing to think. I think it is a weird thing to think, and I, I, I'm also surprised by that. Uh, I went out and checked out the, the betting lines for this just to see what the people who are supposed to know this the stuff. The so-called experts. Yeah. Uh, they have Jose Aldo, the, the favorite, at about 2-1. to one. Uh, Frankie Edgar going off somewhere plus 170, plus 180. Not too far off from where he was in the rematch with Ben Henderson, however. Yeah. Uh, so I don't really see it as a huge huge mismatch where people seem to think that, well, poor Frankie Edgar, he's just going to go down and get stomped at featherweight, and then what? Yeah. I don't see that. It's weird. I, f- I, I feel like haven't we learned not to underestimate Frankie Edgar at Apparently this point? Apparently we have not. It's, it, it seems strange to me, man. I... I I would take those odds walking away. Plus 170 on Frankie Edgar? No yeah. problem. I would take that. Well, I don't know if he's really going to go in there and, and wear Jose all around like a button. But no. uh, he, he does stand a chance of, of going the full five with him and maybe squeaking out a decision. However, does it does it change your mind at all to think of him, Frankie Edgar, a guy who you know is known for going the full five in a lot of fights? If he goes to full five in Rio, what do you? How do you like his chances with the judges there? <laughs> yeah, good point. Especially since he's certainly not. He certainly doesn't have a habit of, of clear-cut decisions. Um, here's the thing, though, that I think about about Jose Aldo, Jose Aldo. Uh, I used to work for Versus.com, a.k.a. NBCSports.com, and as a result, I watched a shitload of the WEC. And uh, around had to about- get that platinum cable package for it, right? Oh, yeah. I had, yeah, I had mm-hmm. to get the highest available cable package. <laughs> uh, and, you know, at the time that the UFC uh, absorbed the WEC – I would have told you that I thought Jose Aldo had a chance to sort of be like a Manny Pacquiao-style figure in MMA, being a 145-pound guy who just go out there and did amazing things and just obliterated everybody because I had watched him do crazy shit like knock Cub Swanson out with a flying double knee. That was crazy. And, in fact, he was so dominant that uh, you know the UFC didn't even bother having him fight for the featherweight title when they, when they absorbed the, the WEC. They just made him the UFC featherweight champion. Uh, but for my money... 
man, maybe this is just a situation where I had really raised expectations. I feel like the guy has underwhelmed a little bit since being in the UFC. And maybe that sounds crazy because I know he's still the champ and has four or five uh, title defenses in a row dating back to his WEC days. But, um, you know, he's got a couple of of uh, impressive knockouts. Um, he knocked out Manny Gamburian and he knocked out Chad Mendez. But, you know, the, the fight against Mark Hominick w- was sketchy. Yeah. I know he had a real tough weight to cut for that fight. And, you know, he obviously clearly won the fight against Kenny Florian, but I don't feel like he went out there and blew Kenny Florian's doors off. Felt like he cruised a little bit toward the end. Yeah. And like he cruised a little bit to the finish line in the, in the Mark Hominick fight, too. And also, I mean, hey, as long as we're making a list and denigrating a man's accomplishments, let's just point out <laughs> that in the Chad Mendez fight... Dude grabs the fence to avoid a takedown and then yeah. immediately turns around and smashes him with a knee. Again, reinforcing the Chad Dundas theory that you should always cheat in an MMA fight. Chuck Liddell style grab that fence. <laughs> Not to continue to expose my biases. But, uh, yeah, yeah, I mean, like, man, if you show up for this Frankie Egger fight the way you showed up for the Mark Hominick fight, you're not winning this one, period. No. So I guess it, it feels strange to me that that people are kind of writing Frankie Edgar off and, and it, it feels kind of strange to me that, that Jose Aldo is underwhelmed a little bit in my opinion in, in the UFC. And I'm, I keep waiting for that. I keep waiting for him to knock somebody out with a double flying knee in the UFC. And it just hasn't happened yet. Well, maybe they haven't fight Cub Swanson again. Uh, here's the thing. Uh, what do you make of this decision that it was going to be, uh, you know, it, it, Aldo versus Eric Koch. And then uh, he gets hurt. Then, so it goes from Frankie Edgar has to win one fight, at least one fight at featherweight to get his title shot to, ah, screw it, we'll just throw a Frankie in there right now. Uh, I mean, A, what do you make of that decision just to, to kind of change, like, well, you had to do this to justify a title shot, or you had to wait till somebody else got hurt, and B, uh, what do, you, do you have any reservations about taking that right away if you're Frankie Edgar? Uh, no, I think if you're Frankie Edgar, it's probably a good deal. As, 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 in terms of how like how they came to make this match and why they made it. I mean, I I don't want to, you know, I don't want to read things into it that aren't there, but I do feel like on the heels of all these injuries and having to full on cancel UFC 151, maybe there's some guys, you know, squeezing it a little tight behind the scenes at the UFC. Maybe they felt like they needed to line up a couple of pay-per-views here that were, you know, if not blockbuster big time sellers, the biggest matchups they could make right in a row. That's kind of how I felt, especially since we got this news, you know, the, the news of George St. Pierre fighting uh, Carlos Condit and Frankie Edgar fighting Jose Aldo kind of came right at one right after another this last week. And to have them both those fights announced right in a row really made me think, wow, they're really trying to uh, stack these cards at the end of the year as best they can to try to, you know, maybe inflate the buy rates a little bit for the year. But I think maybe just because they, they know that, that they kind of uh, – you know, are in a bad situation having to cancel UFC 151 and on the heels of, of having a couple of fight cards that have been scrambled by injury. So to me, it seems like they kind of uh, fast-forwarded Frankie Edgar into this this fight where, you know, I think we all expected he would probably have to win one fight at featherweight before he would get a shot at the title. At the same time, I don't feel like it's totally indefensible. I no, feel like I, because having him, a, yeah. a champion from a, a former champion from another weight class, that does make it a little better. However... Again, it seems like it kind of undermines the whole notion of like, well, this is what you have to do to right. be a number one contender. You got to earn your stripes, kid. You, you got to fight your way up to the top if you want to fight the best. Or you just got to be available. 
when when they need somebody. And this is one of the things that when I was working on the, the piece, I did a thing for USA Today, a short one uh, about matchmaking and manager's perspective on how these fights come together and dealing with the UFC on that. And I did a longer piece for MMA Junkie with stuff in it. But one of the things that uh, didn't make the cut as much in the article that a lot of the managers talked about was when you're thinking about these matchups and about what you want for your guy and what you don't want, uh, the biggest factor for most of them seemed to be not though I think my guy can win this, but is availability of other guys in the division at that time. Because if you say no, and then you look around and you're like, well, they, a lot of them pointed out heavyweight, where everybody right now is either hurt or has a fight booked, it seems. And so it's like if they offer you a heavyweight fight and you say, oh, I don't know, we don't really like that one, which they said you can do. It's not The, the UFC does not uh, come down on you uh, with this unholy wrath. I mean, unless... You ruin an entire event because of it. But, you know, you can say no. You you can say that's not the one you had in mind. But then if you look around, it might not even be the UFC is being dicks to you. It's just that there's no one else around who doesn't already have a fight booked. And so I think some of that, we underestimate sometimes the effect that has on matchmaking. Where you look around and it's a lot of it, okay, who doesn't have a dance partner yet? Yeah. Who's, who's still standing there with their back up against the wall? All right, let's go over and talk to them. You know, that has more of an effect on this stuff than we realize, I think. Yeah, and some of it is contractual, which I think is another element that we hardly ever think about. But, you know, when you're actually in the business, when you're Joe Silva or Sean Shelby, I think availability is probably the first thing you look at. And the second thing is probably where you're at with your contract because, you know, they can't just, you know, a lot of times we're like, oh, why don't they make this fight? Why don't they make that fight? But you can't just like willy nilly give these guys their fights, you know, depending on it. A lot of it depends very much on where they're at contractually. Yeah. Um, before we wrap up, I think it's weird to underestimate Frankie Edgar, but I think we've got also a kind of a strange situation here where the champion from 155 comes down to 145 to fight the featherweight champion, and you're still going to have a situation where Jose Aldo is probably going to be cutting more weight to make 145 than Frankie Edgar does. Um, I saw, you know, at the UFC 136 in Houston at the at the open workouts when they kind of do the media uh, parade line or the media scrum, they they run one guy through right after the other, and so we got the opportunity to see Frankie Edgar and Jose Aldo like one right after the other. And I'll tell you, Jose Aldo is bigger than Frankie Edgar, and so coming into this fight, I, I can't help but wonder, if, you know, if things don't come out right for for Edgar. Like, is it 135? Are we, are we going to start to play as low? Can, how low can you go with Frankie Edgar here? Yeah, I don't, I don't know if he really wants to go down and tangle with uh, Dominic Cruz, who I think takes away his speed advantage. Uh, and I don't know if, if Frankie Edgar's size helps him all that much there. But, hey, who knows? Let's, I, I think let's not assume that this is a gimme for Jose Aldo. Also, one point I wanted to make, though, just last week, Pedro the Wolf is on the podcast complaining that the Brazilians don't get any good fights, that it's just a bunch of Brazilian dudes, and hey, they want to see, you know, they want to see BJ Penn, Roy McDonald too. Uh, but I'm looking at UFC 153 right now. I see Jose Aldo, Frankie Edgar, Rampage Jackson, Glover Teixeira, John Fitch, Eric Silva, Bill Davis, Wagner Prado, Demian Meyer, Rick Story. I don't see a whole lot for you to complain about there. I realize they're doing the thing where there's a Brazilian in every fight, and hey, maybe you want to see a, you know. A Canadian and some dude from Trinidad and Tobago going at it or something uh, just just to mix things up. I look at that card. I don't think Pedro the Wolf's in any position to complain. And I hope he doesn't get mad at me and shoot me because he is obviously a hitman for a drug cartel, uh, just judging by his name. But that's a pretty solid card. Wow, man. Number one, 
calling out listeners of the podcast, which I like. <laughs> Number two, look at the memory on this guy. Yeah. Remembering Pedro the Wolf's question from a week ago and bringing it up again. But that's the limit, a, a week. That's, that's as far back as I can go. That's the kind of, I like, still can't remember who Mo the Wolf fought. Lorenz Larkin. That was who it was. There you go. Well, I knew you'd, it would come to you before we wrapped up. Uh, well, that that is going to do it for round number three. Before we let you go, though, we would be remiss if we did not just say stuff. The recurring segment on the podcast where Ben and I both make a statement, usually a series of statements, as it turns out, uh, that we will then not be asked to explain or defend or stick up for in any way because when it's all said and done, we're just two guys in a room just saying stuff. Ben, do you have one for this week? Do you, do you want to let do. it fly? I'm just saying that if George St. Pierre has to pull out of UFC 154 in Montreal or chooses to pull out to run his men's jewelry line, uh, could be the best thing that ever happened to Patrick Cote. You, you need a, a Quebecois in there? Hey, Patrick, Qua, Pat, Patrick Cote, Anderson Silva, unfinished business. I'm just saying. <laughs> wow, you are just saying. Uh, we talked earlier about how I support... You know, I support my Oregon wrestlers. I'm just saying there's one reason and one reason only that I'm going to be watching the debut episode of the Ultimate Fighter Fridays. What is it? When it comes up on, on FX here. And that will be the inclusion of a guy that I remember from the old sport fight days, Eddie Ellis. And we just before we recorded this, I looked him up on Sherdog and found, uh, much to my dismay, it turns out that he has changed his nickname from Eddie the Bathroom Ellis to awesome. Fast Eddie Ellis. Less awesome. So I just want to let all the MMA fighters out there know, just because you have a nickname that comes from the place it is rumored that you lost your virginity, don't think that you can just change that to something else and then I'm going to forget. No. Because I am going to remember. Yeah. That's right, me, Chad, at my girlfriend's mom's house <laughs> on Martin Luther King Day. When we were off from school and her parents were at work, Dundas. And Ben, the dorm room folks, is kind of impressed that uh, you're going to hold Fast Eddie ac to, to account for this. Uh, you know, I think we can all agree, though, uh, maybe Eddie Ellis's first mistake was telling the wrong people where he lost his virginity. Yeah. You maybe that's the story you don't tell in the gym. You don't want Matt Lindland knowing where you lost your virginity. <laughs> For a lot of reasons. Yeah, he is going to make a nickname out of it. Like, <laughs> that's pretty much just a given. Allegedly, I should say. Maybe that's not what the... That, that was the and story that went around Sport Fight. Though. I'm just going to go ahead and speculate that Matt, father's Oldsmobile Lindland, <laughs> uh, isn't one to forget some shit like that either. Anyway, that's the show for this week. Uh, we'll be back next week. We'll be talking about some stuff. We, we're not sure what yet. We're sure some stuff will happen. Send us your questions for uh, listener mail. You have a really good shot of getting on the air if you send us something good. Um, I'm Chad Dundas from ESPN.com. That's Ben Folks from USA Today and MMAJunkie.com. This is the Co-Main Event Podcast, Episode 16. We're done. That's it. We're out. You don't think it would be Matt the Brothel in London? <laughs> Maybe. Or I could I could see him actually being one like Matt Haylock, which oh, is actually yeah, a pretty sweet nickname. Matt think about it. That actually is. Way sweeter than...